The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. If you've been listening to When the Facts Change for a while, you probably know I grew up in a pretty remote part of New Zealand, near the town of Murapara. You might know that name because that's where the Prime Minister grew up, and she also went to the same school I did, although it has to be said I was there 15 years before because I'm quite a bit older. But it was a, a great rural area, and at the time, the houses seemed quite fine to me. But over the years, Murapara and many of our remote areas have become much tougher, uglier, unhealthier places because a lot of those houses have not been kept up to scratch. There's been plenty of population growth and there is as much of a housing crisis in rural and provincial New Zealand as there is in our biggest cities. You only need to look at what's happening in Rotorua to know that we have a housing crisis that affects Māori in particular. Home ownership rates amongst Māori are extremely low, closer to 20% than the 65% that you see for Pākehā populations in New Zealand. The trouble is land ownership. So much of the land was either stolen or fraudulently bought or bought cheaply over the last couple of hundred years. We once, of course, all of Aotearoa New Zealand was owned by Tangata Whenua. Hardly any is now, and it's broken up into very small parcels, often in rural and provincial New Zealand. But not only that, the parcels are owned by many, many people. In some cases, you could have dozens and dozens of owners of a piece of land and the title on that land, which makes it very difficult to actually make decisions about how to use that land, how to build on it, but also how to borrow money to build houses on that land. Because remember, the great innovation, I suppose you could call it, of modern capitalism, particularly the Anglo-Saxon version of capitalism we have, is the whole idea of unit titles, freehold titles of land owned by individuals, or at most, a single family, a trust, or a company. It makes it easy for banks to lend, knowing the ownership of a discrete piece of freehold land is something that they can put a security against. But just imagine if you have a piece of land where you have dozens of owners, some of whom may not even know that they own the land. But there is a huge need to build houses and places to live on that land. This week on When the Facts Change, I speak to Professor Anthony Huerte, who is a professor of architecture at the University of Auckland. But he comes to that role with a really different background to the usual academic. He's arranged and built and designed developments, housing developments, particularly in the UK, but also in Holland, of all places. He comes from the Bay of Plenty, an island just off the coast uh, near Tauranga, and tells us 
all about this issue of dispersed land title and how it could be solved. This week on When the Facts Change, he talks about using the blockchain and non-fungible tokens, NFTs, as a way to help consolidate some of these land titles, allow people to swap various chunks of land or, or ownership of land from one place to the next, helping Māori find ways to better use that land, particularly for housing. He also talks about using cross-laminated timber to solve some of these issues. And this is where it's, it's quite exciting, really. We obviously have a problem with climate change, child poverty, and housing affordability. And of course, it's most acute in these areas like Murupara, like the uh, East Coast, Northland, where there is a massive problem with a lack of housing. The housing is not carbon-friendly at all. But at the same time, a lot of the iwi land has exotic forests on it, huge forest plantations of Pinus radiata. Just imagine if those forests could be used to build houses and, more importantly, become carbon sinks that provide affordable, clean, warm, dry housing. This week on When the Facts Change, Professor Anthony Huerte talks about using NFTs to help deal with dispersed land title and using cross-laminated timber to solve one of our major issues. Child poverty in the regions, but doing it with affordable housing that becomes a carbon sink and uses a resource which currently is being chopped down and sent off as logs to China, using it locally. That's this week on When the Facts Change. Well, kia ora to Professor Anthony Huati from Auckland University. Welcome to When the Facts Change. Kia ora, kia ora, man. Tell me your story of how you became as you said uh, in a presentation, I watched the professor. Ah, so kia ora. So my, I probably also in that same pre- presentation at Rethinking Housing uh, 2022, um, also mentioned that I'm, even though I'm a professor, I'm not an academic. I'm uh, actually my research and, and knowledge about housing comes from uh, 20 to 30 years of, of practice. Actually doing it. Doing it, doing it. Um, I founded a, an architectural practice in London called What Architecture? Um, and then that company later transformed um, into a separate development vehicle called Game of Architecture, which uh, went out and bought things like uh, a railway station and uh, more latterly bought a, um, a site which had been blown up by one of Hitler's uh, V2 flying bombs. And so um, I got into housing and... Um, if I wind the clock back to my beginnings, so uh, I'm from Motiti Island, Nātiawa uh, Te Iwi. Um, and uh, my father, strangely, has probably built more houses than I'll ever built. Um, that was sort of an approach to building uh, as a sort of pragmatic. Um, they just literally got blocks and started building um, whare on the island. And one of the First houses that I com- completed was um, a project after I left the uh, University College London doing a master's. I returned home to, to build a, a whare on my Tiranga Waiwai for my father. And um, 
This would have been all about it. It would have been back in 96. So um, at that time, pretty much like today, Māori didn't really employ architects. In fact, Māori didn't really employ builders either. He just sort of did it as a DIY project. And I guess from that, those, that sort of modest and humble origins of the, of the architect as builder, 30 years later I found myself in London doing development and operating as the general contractor as well. So, and I treat that sort of pathway literally from the sort of humble origins of uh, building on the island. And, um, and, and so I um, was in practice in the UK. Um, before that I had been registered as an architect in, in the Netherlands. What an amazing place for a young architect to be in the mid-90s to the, for the next decade. It was the hotbed of global architecture. The big offices, I don't know, listeners will know, offices like um, OMA, MVRDV, um, and so had this real uh, amazing grounding in housing um, that I would no, never have acquired if it stayed here. And, of course, the Dutch too, they build housing, not houses, they don't do individual. So, of course, the thing when I've come back to New Zealand and see is that the architecture um, um, uh, circulates around the private dwelling or the bloated batch. And this is great, but this is, these are all luxury devices um, in, in terms of how we understand ha- housing. So when you say housing uh, and in the Dutch experience, what does that mean? So housing is uh, mass housing. It's not the individual dwelling. It's more likely to be apartment blocks. Um, yes, there is terrace housing, but by and large, it's the apartment block approach to um, housing. And over there, uh, those are the best jobs, and they attract the best architects, not the worst. So um, that's where the maximum amount of experimentation goes. And um, so these offices like OMA, uh, MVRDV, uh, NL Architects have created some of the the best housing, social housing we'll see on the planet. Um, and so that was extremely inspirational um, to see that it's a, at the spectrum where the, the residents wouldn't be affording the architect, that there was other systems, just mass housing, which um, produced really exciting work. And um, the other thing about the Netherlands, and we, hey, we could have been colonised by the Dutch if they'd hung, hung around a bit longer. And I always speculate, well, we're, you know, I, I was working not far from outer Zealand, which is old Zealand, and thinking um, how, actually how green the Netherlands is by design and how green New Zealand is by accident. And, of course, so to come back and also see that, you know, the travesty, what's happening to uh, rivers and waterways and, our, um, our suburban sprawl. What do you think Aotearoa New Zealand would have looked like if, well, if, it had, if, if um, well, Van I, Diemen and um, and um, Tasman, Tasman and, had you know had said right? Well, I've, this is ours in Dutch. Well, I can have I, I can have a fairly clear idea of that because every time I fly back to Mortiti from Aotearoa Airport, I fly over the sprawl that is now Aotearoa Mount Monganui and um, Papamoa. And, you know, there would have been a place for um, a kind of a dense... There's two or three towers on the, on the main part of the beach at the moment, but there could have easily have been, uh, let's say, um, uh, something more like a surface paradise or a, something more like I've seen on the Belgian coastline or Costa Iberica. There's a, a model where you could have had towers. Um, first of all, they would have stopped the sprawl. Secondly, everybody who lives in those towns actually would see the sea, which is unlike the, the majority of people who live at the Mount, usually three or four rows back from the beach. Um, and it would have just been a, a different kind of building. And I don't think uh, density is uh, necessarily the antithesis of the natural landscape. In fact, 
density protects the nat- natural landscape and just stops sprawl. So, um, yes, I would have advocated for uh, much much taller dwellings, much t- towers, and also not the domain of cities. You can do rural rural towers, provincial towers, uh, vertical papakainga, sort of a, a good models. Um, and why would you do that? Why would you build a tower in, the, in say, a place like Titeko? Because it's just cheap, a cheaper way of building. You know, you've got to, it's compact. Um, you reduce the footprint on the land. It leaves the land more available for things like agriculture and horticulture. So that's some of the sort of uh, things I'm getting into over here. But um, so I'm advocating for a greater density. Fascinating, because not, not just in the big cities, but you know, particularly no, outside. In, outside. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm curious. In your presentation, you talked quite a bit about uh, uh, land titles mm. and mm. the dispersed. Uh, holdings. Can you go into a bit more depth for those people who haven't got their heads around, you know, exactly how dispersed and how many people? Sure. So, um, so first of all, uh, let's understand the psychology behind this, that Māori land is quintessentially different from a European title. And and te ao Māori in the Māori world, um, um, we belong to the land, the land does not belong to us. This is an idea of land which is not commodified, you know, therefore, um, we've seen the speculation in housing, which has just driven up, um, driven those sort of prices uh, north. But in the Māori world, you know, land is bequeathed and passed down from one generation to another. Now, of course, where we find ourselves, um, um, well, a couple, of, a couple of events which have happened in history, of course, uh, Tatiditi wasn't very good for Māori land ownership. Actually, Māori lost a majority of their land after, and I always remind people, after the treaty was signed, not before. Um, and uh, that's effectively left, left Māori today that 17% of the country owning just 6% of the land. So, but that land is not in cities. It's usually in uh, difficult places to access. It's usually sides of mountains. Uh, it's usually often bush. Uh, it can be forests. Um, so it's slightly inaccessible. But more than that is you've got to understand this idea that because one... Land gets passed down from one generation to another. We now have, um, uh, I think, 2.3 million Māori land interests. That's not uh, that's two, two, uh, 2.3 um, uh, different shareholding interests in Māori land. And now, given that Māori are just uh, 800,000, that's nearly uh, you can sort of see the mathematics. So, um, uh, I'm just going to read you something. And yeah, so in 2011, there were 27. 1,137 Māori land titles. So 27,000 Māori land titles and 2.3 million interest in the land. So what we're seeing is the balkanisation or the fragmentation of land into, um, into tiny parcels with, with multiple um, interests in that land. Um, and, of course, so my research is interested in, first of all, um, there is, there is anecdotal evidence of three, three different um, types, actually. First of all, some Māori don't even know they own the land because of this, this, this uh, crazy uh, numeracy. Secondly, um, some land interests are deceased. And so these kinds of things have also problematised the administration and, uh, and, and, and management of land. So the sort of research I'm interested in is um, how to agglomerate shareholdings. So I know through my father's, uh, so taking a, from a personal perspective, um, he would own interest in about 60 different uh, land blocks from his father's generation as they've been passed down. Um, some of them are in places like Topol. Now, um, 
I don't really go to Taupo and I don't even really fuck up up at Taupo, but hey, there are shares and blocks of land in and around that area. And I think if we could try to find a system, uh, ideally non-monetized, because that would take the sort of um, the kind of fiscal um, issues slightly out of it. But if we find a non-monetized system to that for, for Māori to be able to sh- swap the shares and land, which they have no interest in, those blocks of land down on Topo, which I don't, because I don't happen to go to Topo, uh, in return for maybe there are shares on, on Mōtiti or places where I do have an emotional attachment to, then we could reduce and agglomerate the number of share, shareholders. And so um, I think that's possible through something like using NFTs, um, and that's uh, uh, which, which are an accountable public ledger, and they could access the uh, Māori land online, which has got full information of all shareholders. So there's the data set uh, Māori land online, and then through that, applying an NFT as a sort of a non-monetized market to exchange shares, and it's up to the individuals to work out uh, how many shares of one block they want to give away for shares in another. And that's a, um, a private discussion. And it's just a matter of um, being able to find a way to assign that um, those shares away. So how, how would it work? Let's say, for example, I have um, uh, uh, shares in five or six blocks mm-hmm. all over the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, my now deceased auntie and grandmother have got... Um, shares as well, and everyone's agreed that yes, we can combine these. How, how might that work in NFT? Because blockchain is a perfect way to uh, track ownership changes and to understand where it is and mm. not have it um, owned by some government department or mm. something. So, so, the first thing what I would do, which we've done with my uh, father's actually year, was basically just get a spreadsheet of where they are. Now, um, you know, these shareholders are always uh, usually of the order of one, one or two, less than 1%. And we're talking like tiny shareholders, but, but it's sometimes they can be quite um, quite uh, large. You know, the land's often in the hectares. So, you know, you still you still could have an, uh, have an entitlement to, say, 1,000 square metres, you know. So you, so one would, first of all, have to identify what, what they would have to be a bit active and undertake and find out what, 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 where and what shareholdings they have. And the second thing is, from that process, you'd have to work out um, where what your priorities are, and then you'd have to be active and going again, going through the um, Māori land, find out those shareholders, and then making contact. So now, again, it'd be you know this is something we want to get going and putting into practice. But I think the first the, in the first initial stages, yes, there's a bit of work required um, by those who want to participate. But of course, I'd use myself, put myself in the, as, as in, that, in that trialing period testing um, but that's how it would essentially work you'd have to be active in finding which of the, the other uh, those other parties who have interest in the land that you want and then reaching out so one of the reasons for doing this mm. is to um, pull together and make it easy to make decisions about what to do sure. particularly with housing sure uh, can you give us an idea of how that shakeout if you like could help make it easier to get to get a lot more housing done where it's needed. Sure. So once you've reduced the number of landowner interests, and of course through that process you'll then find out who's alive and you know did it. Um, um, it's, it's much easier then to configure yourselves. Yep. As a you know, invariably these are already configure themselves as trusts. Yep. And once you have a trust, obviously um, then you have the ability to to raise finance 
against security because the you know the trust would have a mandate to um, secure finance. Uh, um, at the moment, I've, the market's sort of saying though the loan to value ratios for for trusts on Maori land are about forty to fifty percent. So it's much less than the loan to value is there on European title. But none, nonetheless, it's it's happening because um, a few years ago it wasn't happening. Um, and then, of course, um, that the, the types of buildings you're likely to build on that land um, won't be individually owned. They have to be collectively owned. And so uh, we would be looking at, and, and we've, we've done um, one at the moment where the, the land was in an area where most of the hapu lived in the cities, Māori are highly urbanising, faster than um, non-Māori at the moment. Um, and so they return back to these, often to these places for, uh, for, for summer, for tangi, for weddings, etc., etc. So they don't actually need to live there all the time. So if you take this idea of timeshare and then um, you can build and you could basically be um, designing and building what we call build-to-rent housing, which is basically, and it could be offered to members of the hapu on a timeshare basis rather than collective ownership. You mentioned one particular project where um, people could uh, go and have holidays, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. And and at the same time be able to Airbnb some that's of right. the shares. Yeah, so we did some um, um, financial modelling. I think the build cost is something like, so what we do in, as part of this research, we do full uh, business plans. So, you know, I think the build cost comes in at something like $10 million or something. But then you add in you know, fees and you work it out. Um, and then you have to work um, offset that against the income which it needs to generate. So in this case, it's a, it was um, housing for 100. Um, you could imagine most hapa are about, let's say, 5,000 strong. Um, and so we don't want the situation where we're building a, a few housing, uh, you know, and there are issues when you're building a few housing for you and you've, and you've got a 5,000-strong um, um, uh, you know, hapa And like I said, particularly when you've, shaking the can on this NFT approach to ownership, you'll still be left with um, interest in the hundreds. It's, it's unlike to just go down to one. But anyway, so you know that you're going to have to try to accommodate um, greater numbers. And so so working on the basis of a, of a, of, of a uh, of 5,000 as a hapu um, and you get 100, you can work out that if each, each of those members was allowed to stay uh, two weeks, that would give uh, it's two weeks 100 people and then um, divide, so 26, so, so over, over a year, times 26, you would have, have accommodated 2,600. So if you've got a happy with 5,000, then you offer them a week each. So it's basically trying to do it as a timeshare. I mean, I was sort of equipped um, that the model's a brotel, which is a sort of, <laughs> sort of part motel for, um, for Māori. But, and then how you pay for it, well, we, we were working on numbers of around $25 per night per person. So if you had 100 a night, you know, to 25, it's 2,500, you know, uh, sort of 15,000 a week. So you can start to see 15,000 a week. What's that over 750 a year, 750,000? You can still see how the numbers could stack up and see it could service, start to service some of that uh, repayment uh, against um, the build development costs. Um, and, of course, the, the safety net is uh, where members of the who, who uh, shareholders don't stay um, you can put the places on Airbnb in the areas we were looking at something like $200 a night. So there's a sort of uh, safety net in terms of um, maintaining the income generation. So, you know, and many, many of these lands are in areas like, um, you know, um, I'm, I'm from, we've got land in Whakatane on coastlands and, you know, it's right next to the beach. And so, 
you start to see how um, you can generate income and employment for Māori in such areas. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 2526. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Another big part of your presentation was around the use of laminated timber mm. to build mm. particularly bigger buildings and housing mm. arrangements. Mm. So typically people have thought of timber buildings mm. being, oh, it's a standalone mm. three-bedroom house, a Lockwood or something. But uh, you've had experience of using laminated timber in Britain to mm. produce medium-density housing. Mm. Tell us about um, the opportunity there and how it could mm. be done. Well, uh, yeah, nice. So from NFT to CLT, yeah. um, <laughs> um, uh, I grew up in a place called Kaura. They had a pulp paper mill called Tasman. Um, so, um, and like many Māori, we have a stronger affinity and connection to the forests. You know, I think uh, 40, nearly 40% of the forestry workforce is Māori. Um, so uh, CLT, for those listeners, is is cross-laminated timber. And the best way to sort of think of it is, um, is plywood and steroids or supersized plywood. So instead of plywood coming like 20mm sheets, um, the, 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 we were using uh, thicknesses of 250mm in our floors. So it's not like stud, timber stud frames that we typically see in housing. This is thick, uh, solid uh, wooden panels made out of um, softwoods, which are glued together uh, and, and, and cross-plied, so at 90 degrees. Um, and they're relatively lightweight. And, um, you know, it's 
absolutely appalling that we haven't, uh, being a timber country with, uh, I think, Kainga Order is our, is, was the, world's sec- the southern hemisphere's second largest man-made forest, so we, that we haven't taken our, uh, our, our and also the, the, the country is covered with 40% of forest anyway, and we haven't taken um, all that natural resources and, and added um, value to it by processing timber. At the moment, we're exporting raw logs to China, who in turn um, have been subsidised by the Chinese government to then go on and process it. And I think, you know, there's, need, there's def, a definite need and I think there's a, tra- a transformation plan which has just been released last month to prioritise um, the use of uh, of logs and adding value to them to, to produce CLT and stuff like that. So we would... So in the UK, we were using... Um, uh, we used a Spanish company. Um, it was a five-storey building. Um, came flat-packed on five massive articulated trucks. And the beauty of uh, CLT is that it's very controllable. So you create these sheets and you can use CNC machines to slice them up in exactly the right amounts and so that you don't have to worry, as you often do with, um, you know, four-by-twos or whatever. Yeah, no twisting, no warping. So like on site, there's no um, warped um, um, stud or you don't have to worry about um, keeping them dry. So the other problem with... So um, stud framing is, is, is warping, twisting the humidity and issues. So it doesn't matter. CLT is so thick. Uh, so the walls are typically 100 mil solid. Um, they don't catch fire because, like, you know, from lighting a barbecue, you don't use a log to, to start fire. You need, you need kindling. So they, you can get 60 to 90-minute fire ratings, no problem. Um, if you want to, as we did in London, we coated the, um, the, the, the CLT with a, a, a flame retardant um, called Envirograph, which reduces the ignition point by another 20 minutes. So we had 80-minute um, fire rating. So it's good for fire. Um, and, uh, yeah, as you said, um, it's really, really easy to The architects in their offices would be using CAD. So these CAD packages and, three, like, 3D printing go straight to the uh, factories where they use CNC and cut it out. So you can get tolerances on windows up to uh, between one and two millimetres. So typically with a timber frame, you put the frame up, Somebody, window guy comes along when the frame's all up with the rough openings, measures it all up, and then goes and makes the windows. This is not required um, um, with CLT because the dimensional accuracy straight off the drawing means that you can order the windows probably even before you start cutting the frame, uh, before you start cutting the CLT panels. So um, it's got massive traction um, in the United Kingdom. It's green. It's got... Um, it's, it's carbon sequestered uh, within the... It literally is a carbon sink that you live in. Th- that's right. It's a carbon sink. Um, now, there's one thing, some people don't like the... Our company um, doesn't use uh, um, jib board, plaster board. We, yes. yes. So yes. There's, there's no need to wait for Fletcher to make the No. Carbon. So, the, sorry, the um, jib board, I do say that maybe they should be thinking about setting up a CLT factory. They've certainly got the resource, financial resources for it. Um, and, um, yeah, so we, we don't use plasterboard now. And so what, what, what do you see when you look at the walls? You see, you see a sort of pine, uh, a bit like um, a joke, a bit like a Swedish sauna from the 70s. But, hey, um, if that's, um, you know, that's slightly more empathetic. I noticed amongst the younger generation today that seeing raw materials is, uh, is more empathetic with the world, which is going through climate change and all that. And so um, I think this masking, uh, you know, plus. Using plasterboard to mask things is not so great. And the other thing with CLT, 
you can surface fix the um, electrical, uh, all the, so we put it in, in conduit and we just surface mount it to the, to the walls. So it has a kind of aesthetic. This is, remember, this is for um, affordable housing. It's not for bling bling um, luxury housing. Um, and a lot more could be done off-site as well before that's it right. comes in. Yeah, so it's off-site manufacturing. And you just literally just like tilt up slab, stand it up, um, and we would build uh, the entire structure. There's floors, uh, floors usually something around 250mm thick for a 7 metre span. Um, walls about 110 mm thick, so we would do the stairs out of it. So you can do the entire, uh, you can do the entire superstructure. And... Um, and it's and it's fantastic, and it's so so fast, direct, unbelievable. So we can do five stories in two weeks, and um, and that's it. So uh, we just so of course back here, I'm advocating that you know if if we fix Maori housing, we fix housing for all. So of course I'm trying to push that. Um, let's not let's reduce the means of construction that we have. So um, there are lots of forms of um, offsite manufacturing, from volumetric to um, SIPs, um, structural insulated panels, etc. But um, we're a small, small nation, and I think we've, with this forestry resource, I think we should focus on uh, trying to do all forms of off-site manufacturing. I'm advocating that we get into mass engineering timber products, CLT, glue lamb, uh, and develop that housing. And if we become master of a few of things rather than um, trying to attempt too many ways of construction, that that's my approach to. Um, to trying to do, disrupt the affordability issues we're suffering in housing today. Particularly for um, iwi who own forests and control mm, forests mm, mm. and where the forests are close to um, where you want to build the housing mm, and when you've got mm. um, control of land, there is an opportunity here to um, invest in these uh, off-site and uh, mm. CLT plants mm. Build lots of housing that's close by, but mm. also you know export it to the cities. Well, yes. Well, it's interesting too because if you did an overlay, um, which I'm not sure if you recall from yesterday, but an overlay of where Māori land is, mm. and it is very close to those forests, and so Māori are in, in those sort of zones where um, uh, not only have you got a, is there a forest culture um, traditionally, but um, they're actually well located. And of course, yes. Um, we just need to, uh, particularly as the, uh, I know right around about 70% of iwi have had the settlement claims of te tiriti, but um, there's still more to come and increasingly Māori will own uh, 50% of the um, exotic forests. Um, so we may, not, we may not get our land back, but you'll get forests and of course we want to put forests um, to use and I think you know here's an opportunity uh, to create employment too. Um, because if New Zealand can get um, can start now sending uh, processed timber abroad, you know where we're going to send it. We're going to send it to places like um, Australia, Southeast Asia. Um, there are only two um, of the sixty six um, producers of CLT. It's all, all but two are in the um, northern hemisphere. So it seems like a perfect match where you have the forests here, mm. which aren't being used to their full potential mm. in terms of creating value and creating jobs here. They're often on iwi land. There is a problem. We need to build lots of housing for Māori and doing it in a way which is faster and happens to be much better for the climate too seems obvious. Yeah, that's right. And also, you know, the export value of that. So the 
the 15% of logs at which, which we do process send us abroad earning 40% of the uh, of forestry revenue. So um, you can sort of see the kind of value it is to the economy and uh, we just need to uh, apply some uh, governmental um, fiscal and policy levers to stimulate and encourage growth. At the moment we have we do have um, red stang, but you know, of course, like any you know, environment, you know, it's also a bit good to have more than um, to, to avoid a monopoly and have more than one player. Um, and that's particularly up and down the country. Because that's right. And red stag are, are great, but um, there's also need. There's a capacity, and you know, um, I think they're showing excellent leadership. But there's also opportunities for others, and there's an, uh, and those forests will never going to exhaust the, su- the supply. I mean, of course, we're active in reforestation and carbon crediting, so that's um, that's good for the future. So um, to wrap up, then a potential to use NFTs and CLT to deal with our housing and our climate issues. Yeah, so I'm saying uh, use the NFT to produce CLT so that we can build BTR housing that's built around housing. Fantastic. Kia ora, Anthony. Kia ora, thank you so much for the time. Wonderful that you were able to be on When the Facts Change. You know, excellent. And thank you so much for the opportunity. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.